Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. Less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com. That's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bitman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. 
These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. I cover all things food, from cooking to gardening to fabulous ingredients to junk food, health, sustainability, even policy. You might say I'm obsessed with everything about food. Food is the one substance that connects everything to everything else. And it connects us all. Not only can we not live without it, not only does it determine much of what goes on in the world, but we love it. I want to welcome my friend Raj Patel to the podcast. Raj is one of the true leaders of the food and social justice movements someone all of us involved in food justice turn to with questions or just for a good gab. Raj grew up in London, has degrees from Oxford, the London School of Economics, and Cornell, and has worked at the World Bank and the UN and the World Trade Organization. And despite all of that, he has brilliant politics. He fought in early globalization struggles, and he writes and speaks about and for the right side of not only food issues, but economic, climate, justice issues, and more. Some refer to him as the rock star of social justice writing, and there was a period where a bunch of lunatics literally believed that Raj was the Messiah, which he has steadfastly denied. He is a great guy. As I said, Raj has taught all over the place and is now the research professor in the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, Austin, He's written seven books, including the now almost 10-year-old and seminal Stuffed and Starved, The Hidden Battle for the World Food System. And as you probably know, and we'll certainly hear from our conversation, that battle is ongoing. His newest book, and if you're listening to this on Monday when this podcast episode drops, his newest book is due out tomorrow, that is August 3rd. It's called Inflamed. Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. It's written with the Dr. Rupa Marya, and it is a fascinating concept, and we'll talk about that. Welcome to the show, Raj. Okay, our first recipe today is, I guess you'd call it a shrimp salad because you tend to name salads after the animal products that are in them, but it's really a sort of fruit and vegetable chopped salad with shrimp. I'm going to call it chopped salad with shrimp, and you'll see why. Take some shrimp and toss them in olive oil, salt, and cracked black pepper and grill them or broil them or even saute them until they're cooked through, you know, three or four minutes. Set those aside. Then... Zest and juice a lemon and combine that with some olive oil, some cilantro or parsley, more salt and pepper. That's your dressing. And toss with that some diced red onion, some chopped cucumber. This time of year, you should not have to peel it, but do it if you must. And some chunks of ripe peaches or plums or watermelon or cantaloupe. That's key. And use a lot because that's really, really good. And then just toss all that with the dressing dot the top of that with a shrimp and garnish with a little bit more uh, cilantro or parsley. Awesome dish. Raj, old friend, welcome to Food with Mark Bittman. Thank you, Mark Bittman. 
It is lovely to be on food with you. You just released this documentary, which I know from personal experience you've been working on. I don't know. Did you start in like 1937 or something like that? It's been a while. It feels that way. We had to do a couple of reshoots. So in the end, it was a decade long project. This documentary was sort of born of the frustration that I felt a decade ago, which I still feel when it comes to food documentaries, which is that they're always sort of presented as these sort of knowing, you know, middle class folk nodding their heads and telling you what to eat and why everything's going to hell in a handbasket. And then cut to suffering people of color who are enduring the food system, but have very little to say for it other than it sucks. Uh, and the, the point of this documentary was to flip the script on that a, a lot by saying actually some of the best solutions to hunger and climate change and big problems in, for example, gender inequality and patriarchy are going to come not from bespectacled folk in the ivory tower, but in fact, from the front lines of things like climate change and hunger and gender inequality. You were very forward thinking about that because you've long said leadership needs to come from people who are not currently in leadership. We need to follow people who are doing the work on the ground, have been disempowered historically. How did we come to that? And what does that mean that we actually do in day-to-day -day activism? My first sort of deep exposure to that kind of thinking came from the international peasant movement, La Via Campesina, who in the 1990s were very clear about the fact that they'd had enough of folk at the World Bank, for instance, telling countries in the global south how they were going to get themselves out of the debt that the World Bank had got them into in the first place by doing things like specializing in coffee or in tropical products and just exporting their way out of debt. And peasant movements the world over had for decades much better ideas about how to think for themselves and had been systematically denied leadership. And so they, they, they took it. And when La Via Campesina formed, uh, it was just, you know, I think 20 or so countries were represented. Uh, and now there are, you know, sort of 200 million members from dozens of countries around the world. And, you know, you, you've asked, well, what, what made me see leadership coming from, or the imperative of leadership coming from the front lines? And it's really having better ideas coming from those folk. I mean, I, I wanted to end hunger. I've wanted to end hunger since I was five. And, you know, I've, I've been, I was looking for different ways of doing that. And, for, you know, for my sins, even found myself with a foot in the door at the World Bank. And I interned at the World Trade Organization, wondering if they had good ideas. And it turns out they don't. But there's a search for th these kinds of solutions ended up with my hanging out with the people who were protesting against the World Bank and uh, discovering from them that actually th there was far more intellectual sophistication ecological sophistication and social sophistication from movements on the outside than, than one could find within the World Bank. You were highly educated at that point, two or three universities. Was this 99 when, were you radicalized before 99? For me, my sort of political e evolution began, like I say, when I was five uh, in, in India, seeing hunger and just losing my shit. I screamed and cried and that, you know, there was a girl begging outside the window of, a, of the car that we were in. And I just, I lost my mind. I, I was so angry and upset and disappointed in everything that allowed that girl to be outside and us to be inside. And I went back to England and rented my toys out so we could send money for famine relief. But the, the sort of political awakening in the, the idea that actually you need politics to change all this was a recognition that, that came really through living through Thatcher's Britain and seeing the protests 
against the, the sort of neoliberal policies that she had brought in to the UK and joining the protests against the fascists on the street and against the sort of neo-Nazis who had come out of the woodwork emboldened by certain elements within the Conservative Party who felt like the neoliberal agenda and an agenda of white supremacy were coextensive. So, you know, being beaten up and, and fighting against uh, racists in the street of London were, was also a moment of political awakening, as was the campaign against nuclear disarmament and Greenpeace. And, you know, there were a range of sort of campaigns that happened in Britain at the time. And I, I was swept up in those and increasingly realized that if we're going to solve one problem, we do have to solve them all. And the kinds of piecemeal solutions that involve sending money over to Africa or to India or wherever it is to be able to solve hunger are not going to work. And so you know, the, the political awakening that I got from being in these street protests was part of that realization. So interest in politics came out of interest in food rather than the other way around. If I say to you, why food? It's because you've always been concerned about food. You're saying you were interested in fighting hunger when you were a kid. It's not that you were doing politics and thinking, well, food is a good way in. It's that you were doing food and your mind grew to understand that that was a political issue. That's right. Particularly when you're a kid and you see these images on the screen of people going hungry and you see Live Aid, you, you have Bob Geldof asking, do they know it's Christmas? One's mind is systematically distracted from politics in, in that sort of environment when it comes to food. But it's only through actually engaging with the politics of the time that I came back to understanding how food was and always has been political. So the film, just to get back to Anson Grasshopper, the film combines a climate change theme and a food theme and several others. But why don't you talk about it for a minute? The idea here is that there's an incredible group in Malawi called the Soils, Food and Healthy Communities uh, Project. And if you go to Soil and Food, you can find out more about them. But you know, it's, in, in essence, their trajectory has been one of learning how agroecology works. And you hear this term agroecology all over the place, and it's worth demystifying it a little bit. Agroecology is not just the idea that you can, for example, plant corn and beans and squash next to each other, which, you know, these sort of three sisters of Mesoamerican agriculture, you know, are a sort of poster child for how instead of specializing in one crop, if you intercrop three different things, they work together much better. Uh, and this is sometimes sort of touted as an example of agroecology. And it kind of is because it moves away from a monoculture approach to a polycultural approach. But actually, agroecology isn't just about technologies of growing things together. It's also about changing the frameworks in which food provisioning happens. Uh, and for the folk in the Soils, Food and Healthy Communities Initiative, that they understood that, look, yes, we can get more nutritious crops by intercropping, but we also have to realize that it's a step from having crops coming out of the ground to making sure that everyone eats them. What are the reasons that people are not eating fairly and equitably in our, in our communities? Well, domestic violence has a lot to do with it. Uh, so they started asking questions about domestic violence and about how to stop that. Uh, and then they started asking questions about climate change. And we followed some of these transformations in the film, looking at how it is that really some of the, the most sort of marginalized communities, AIDS widows, for example, in northern Malawi, became scientists, not just of the soil, but of their society as well. And th this is a way of getting back to the question you asked at the beginning, Mark, of well, how do we operationalize the idea of leadership from the grassroots? And I, and I think part of the idea there is to recognize that there are some very good ideas happening. And in part, why don't we step out of the way? And why don't we sort of do what Marx encourages, which is to commit class suicide? And in the filmmaking process, what that looks like is, for example, you know, early drafts of the film, I was narrating it. And it, it became very clear that actually 
a lot of the important decisions in this film were made by our central character, Anita Chitaya. And it made much more sense for me to step back and to facilitate a way for her to narrate the film and to shape the film in ways that that now mean that I have a much smaller role and appear on screen a couple of times. But really, this is a film driven by her choices and her decisions, and she gets to narrate it. And that idea of sort of stepping back and stepping away and creating space and reworking the architecture of power so that Anita, in this particular instance, was much more powerful than a normal documentary project would have allowed her to be, that is what it looked like for us in this project. And you know, in, in different projects, it would look rather different. But I, I think what we tried to do in the end was practice what we preach in the making of the film. And that's why this film feels and looks a little different from uh, some of the other food documentaries you may have come across. In watching the film and knowing you, it feels like you learned that during the course of making the film. I mean, maybe that's the benefit of having it taken 10 years is that there's this just sense that she really, she took over, she owned the voice of that film in an incredible way. And when you, not to give away too much, but when you go to Iowa she is really orchestrating what's going on and she's speaking directly to the Iowans and I guess she went to California too, but the Americans that she met, she's really in charge of, even though completely a stranger in a strange land, really feels in charge of the project. Yeah, and and I think that that was... You're right. It, it was a, a process of discovery along the way. And it is one of the, the joys of working 10 years on a project where, for example, the man who was initially our driver and fixer in Malawi, Peter Mazunda, uh, Peter became our director of photography and now is a producer in the film through our working with him and through recognizing, yes, we have a position of privilege and we can do something about that. You know, we were able to change some of those power dynamics. But Anita is a force of nature. I mean, that's one of the things that sort of jumps out at you in the process of this film as you watch it. There is you know, a power to her that is common with a lot of other activists. And it's very interesting to see where she, you know, is trying to school people and where she is in a relationship among peers. There's a very interesting racial aspect to that in the United States. As she travels across America, the conversations that she has with, you know, white folk in the heartland take a very different tone to the kinds of conversations she has with people of color who are often on the front lines of climate change here in the United States. Let's switch gears for a second. You know, the farming situation or the plight of Indian farmers gets a little bit of press, but it's really hard for many of us to understand what's going on there right now. The issues are complicated. They don't sound at first glance by someone like me. I don't want to generalize. They don't sound like farming issues, and yet they are farming issues. And I know you do understand it, and I'm wondering if you could give us a little primer on on what's happening. Absolutely. Thank you for asking, Mark, because the farmer protests were, by one measure, the, the largest protest in human history. And we, we had hundreds of millions of people participating in protests in December 2000 as these farm protests broke across India. And they, they are still going on. You know, we're recording at the end of May when the, the COVID waves are still breaking over India and People are dying in their thousands. But the farm protests on the outskirts of Delhi are still there. And they're there because farmers are very worried that if they move, they will lose the capacity to be able to fight back against the Modi government. So what these farm protests are about are about how tucked into Prime Minister Narendra Modi's COVID relief package that, that was launched in May 2000 were provisions that 
started to liberalize the markets that farmers had depended on, particularly farmers in a, in a few states, Punjab and Haryana. These are states where the state government provides basically a, a sort of function of regulating markets in some key crops, particularly in wheat. And what the government proposed to do was to get away with state-level regulation and to make it a sort of national market except without providing any infrastructure of a national market. Essentially, what this was, was a giveaway to a few billionaires who have entered the food and grain distribution business, who are close friends of Narendra Modi. And farmers kind of got this early on and started protesting first in Punjab. And then when the protests in the middle of the year didn't seem to be going anywhere, they said, all right, Delhi Chalo, which means let's go to Delhi. And they, they marched down through February and set up camp towards the end of the year in the outskirts of Delhi. And they're not just there to protest the sort of opening of these kinds of markets, but they're there to protest the end of a certain kind of state-supported agriculture. And what the Modi government is doing is sort of writing the sort of death spiral of industrial agriculture in India to the benefit of a few corporations as the, you know, the soil dries up. And you know, I mean, if you go to Punjab, you'll see high levels of farmer suicide, you'll see epidemic drug abuse, you'll see the, the kinds of horrors that you see actually in the heartland in the United States as well, where you know, farm country is dying and a few people are making a great deal of profit. And, you know, this has all been silenced very effectively by a state regime that is ready to seize on any kind of dissent. So, you know, when the hashtag uh, resign Modi was trending, you know, the, the Modi government got Facebook to, to delete posts with that in it. And, you know, so some people have said, well, you know, it sounds like Modi is a fascist. And uh, this is unkind to fascists. Because the, the fascist party in Maharashtra has said that these farm laws are a bad idea. So the fascists think that this is going a little too far. But you know, the, the Modi administration seems to be going ahead with it because the billionaires quite like the idea of being able to run these markets. So that's why the farmers are protesting. They're protesting the, the sort of the end of a certain kind of agriculture. They want something better. But what is being offered on the table by Modi is at best, we can postpone these laws by 18 months, but these laws are inevitable. And that kind of laws being rammed through without any kind of discussion, which is what happened in this case, is why people are quite upset. Uh, and instead, what farmers are doing, and you, you'll find libraries in the, uh, you know, in, in the protest camps, as well as, you know, clinics and, and other kinds of long-term infrastructure for staying there for a while. But in the libraries, people are exchanging ideas, as farmers always have done, because they understand that actually they need to study the problem that they find themselves in and study a way out of it. And you know, again, this is all about the intellectual leadership emerging from the grassroots. It's always been there. And I think that you know, the fact that you can have a permanent library on a protest line is indicative of the kind of intellectual rigor that farmers are bringing to the problems that they're facing right now. I'm keen for us in the United States to pay attention both to the fact that farmers need our support in India, but also just paying attention to the farmers and to their leadership is very important. Because without emphasizing that understanding of farmer leadership in ground to ideas that, in fact, we in the United States are responsible for. I mean, the first draft of most agricultural policies in the global south were drawn up in Washington, D.C., whether it was the Green Revolution or whether it was the subsequent Washington consensus. In India, uh, there was something called the U.S.-India Knowledge Initiative that was trumpeted by George W. Bush in the, the early 2000s. It was meant to be a way for scientists to know agriculture better and to, you know, to, to send their wisdom out into the world. And really, it was just a beard for the transformation of Indian agriculture into something that looked like what was happening in the Midwest. Uh, and you're seeing 
land reform initiatives sneak their way into certain states in India, which are you know, dangerous augers for consolidation of land of the kinds we see in the United States. So certainly, uh, you know, paying attention to what's going on in India, but also understanding that we in the United States are connected through our international, uh, you know, the international organizations of which our government is part and through the State Department. We're connected to, toward the furthering of the kinds of policy that the United States, that the Indian farmers are protesting against, and you know, us being very aware of that and fighting our own government on behalf of Indian farmers, I think is quite important. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more food in just a minute. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Have you ever bought something, owned something that really inspired you to up your game? A tennis racket, a new pair of running shoes, a new piece of cooking equipment that made you just want to cook your brains out? I know that when I first started cooking on induction burners, I just couldn't stop. It was so much fun. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Some of the features that are available on this car include dynamic sky panorama glass roof, front row massaging seats, you know you want that. Available 33-inch all-terrain tires, which you will want when you check out the multi-terrain select. 
These are really great features, the kind of features that will make you proud and happy to own a Lexus GX. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. We're all drinking more water these days, and we're all concerned that we're drinking safe, clean, unpolluted water. Yet, according to our friends at the Environmental Working Group, three out of four homes in the United States have harmful contaminants in their tap water. That's why it's worth checking out AquaTrue. AquaTrue purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers work with no installation or plumbing. They remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters and are specifically designed to combat chemicals like PFAS, you know, those forever chemicals, in your water supply. PFAS, by the way, is found in almost 45% of U.S. tap water. AquaTrue has water purifiers to fit every type of home, from installation-free countertop purifiers to higher-capacity under-sink options. Their proprietary purification technology is independently tested to remove over 80 of the most harmful contaminants, including chlorine, fluoride, arsenic, PFAS, nitrates, and many, many others. The filters are affordable and long-lasting, and they do not need changing every two or three months like so many others. They last from six months to up to two years. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water, less than three cents a bottle. Plus, you won't be buying bottled water, and it'll save the environment from tons of single-use plastic waste. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee and makes a great gift. Today, listeners to Food with Mark Bittman receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. Just go to AquaTrue.com, that's A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com, and enter code Bittman at checkout. For 20% off any AquaTrue water purifier, go to AquaTrue.com and use the promo code Bittman, B-I-T-T-M-A-N. I think we should talk about your book. You have a new book coming out, I think, over the summer, yeah? That's right. I, I was honored uh, to co-author a book with Rupa Maria. We got together as a result of a podcast. She, she came over to talk to the Dell Medical School, and then myself and Tom Philpott and Rebecca McEnroy uh, interviewed her on The Secret Ingredient. And we, we just got to talking afterwards about how bodily inflammation is connected to the food system, but it's connected to everything from racial injustice to patriarchy to histories of colonialism. And Rupa and I got to talking, we realized that there was enough here that we hadn't really seen elsewhere for us to pitch a book. So the book is called Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice. And you know the, the joy of it is that what we get to do is basically present an anatomy. We, we start with thinking about the immune system and uh, we, we go through uh, everything from sort of respiratory to neurological. And we look at how inflammation in your body is absolutely connected to the fact that you know, our world is on fire. And so the flames within your body, whether they are in your lungs because of COVID or in your nerves or in your gut, these are all connected to the kinds of ways of thinking about the world and planet and life that have destroyed the soils around us uh, and the air that we breathe. I do remember saying, is it a coincidence that the health of the human body and the health of the planet are tied together? Or is that 
an illusion or is that reality? And the book is saying, oh, it's very much reality. Yeah, and it's worth looking at counterfactuals. I mean, we're often told that we are living in the Anthropocene, that it is this era of humans destroying the planet, but it's not all humans. And knowing that, I think, is quite important because if you look at humans who really don't have a hand in the destruction of the planet, uh, indigenous communities, for example, indigenous people are guardians of 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity, even though they constitute only 5% of the human population. And in certain indigenous communities, you'll find not just rich biodiversity outside their bodies, but very rich microbiomes, for example. You know, you've been hearing a lot about the microbiome recently if you've been thinking about food. But we're at this sort of strange stage of capitalism where it turns out that the microbiomes of uncontacted indigenous people may contain the kinds of bacteria that us capitalist humans need to replenish our microbiome. We find ourselves in this odd medical moment of needing to engage in some sort of salvage anthropology where we're chasing the poop of communities whose continued existence is premised on our not destroying uh, the worlds in which they live. And while we destroy precisely the forests and the isolated islands and the the isolated communities in which they they find themselves. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a strange world in which capitalism is ready to put a, a dollar value now on the poop of you know, the Anomami tribe, even at the same time as there are huge land grabs and killings going on right now in Brazil, because this particular indigenous community, the Anomami, find themselves on land that has gold in it. And so, you know, it is a tragic situation in which the communities that that have incredibly good ways of living with the world around them are precisely the ones that can save us from wave of uh, inflammatory disease. And because the way capitalism works, they find themselves in very real risk of extermination. I want to cover one more thing, and then you can feel free to talk about whatever you want to talk about. But uh, this is just something that I've been saying, and because I trust you, and because I think it would be interesting to hear, some number of years ago, the word reparations was not a dirty word, but hard for many people to accept, white people especially, to accept. And, And now it's more common parlance and taken more seriously even by white people. My opinion is the next phrase to sort of legitimize in the United States is land reform. I mean, without going too deeply into it, we, again, you're right. It's not we, but we say we, but white Europeans threw indigenous people off the land, appropriated that land and all the other horrors that went with that, and then proceeded to redistribute that land to other white Europeans, mostly men. And so from 1870 or 1860 or so on, we have this great land giveaway of much of what is now the United States being given to, again, white European men and mostly for free. So to me, in order for us to farm better, in order for us to produce food better, some of that land, which is mostly being farmed in monoculture now, needs to be farmed better in ways that steward the land and protect the soil and produce good food and provide a living for farmers and all the other things that we talk about. But that does require some kind of redistribution of this land. We have to get land out of the hands of people who own a thousand and three thousand acres of it at a time and somehow get it into the hands of people who are eager and willing to farm an acre, five acres, 50 acres, 100 acres, whatever, whatever makes sense. 
that's my way of thinking. And I want to know whether you think that you can advance that or reject that or what. I like it that you phrased it in this way, that you're, you know, that you are thinking in this sort of big picture way and that you are thinking about the historical progression here. I mean, it, it seems to me that, that, you know, there are really interesting barometers of the possibilities of change. For example, with reparations, what were the big institutions that first kind of got it very reluctantly and still very reluctantly uh, seem to get it? Uh, universities, for instance, have done some work, you know, not nearly enough and not nearly enough of them, but some work to uncover the histories in which, you know, the, the wealth of, of many of these older universities was made through slavery and how enslaved people made possible not just the physical infrastructure of, of the university, but also it, its great wealth. Now, it's very interesting to me that, that right now there's uh, more and more of a recognition that America's land-grant universities were granted land that wasn't grantable. And there, there's more and more discussion around how it is that universities should relate to the fact that they are profiting off stolen land. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, th those discussions are very much in their infancy. But it's important to bear that in mind, particularly because of the connection between land-grant universities and the food system in America. The land-grant universities are often these institutions that exist precisely to be able to uh, generate certain kinds of knowledge that support certain kinds of farmers in certain kinds of capitalist enterprise. And again, it's, it's not an accident that if you look at the Department of Labor's statistics of the whitest professions in America, you can sort by profession. And if you look at the, the sort of relative concentrations of professions by race, there's nothing with nearly as much concentration as you find for white folk, where the whitest job is uh, the assessing of value, and the second whitest job is farming. And, you know, both of these are sort of around 97, 97% for the former and 95% for, for farming. Now, you know, it's not that folk who came over on the Mayflower have a, a natural predilection for picking up straw and chewing it and, and deciding what to plant. It has everything to do with the history of white supremacy in this country. And there have been moments in, in American history when, you know, where the question of land reform has become a speakable one. So, you know, I remember 10 years ago, there was a, a conference about this in San Francisco, but there was a very big conference in 1973 in San Francisco, where the NAACP and the Friends of the Earth and the Archdiocese of Kansas were all together talking about the need for land reform. And so, you know, th th there have been moments where the language of land reform has popped up and then it's been sort of tamped back down again. This time, I'm more hopeful that there can be some substantive change because, as you say, you know, what what needs to happen is not merely this Bill Gates's 244,000 hectares of land needs to be given to a person of color, but it's that that huge estate needs to be broken up and the kinds of farming on it need to be transformed. So what farming is now is essentially a way of parking a great deal of wealth and getting a return on it. And that's what the governmental infrastructure, the chemical infrastructure, the ecological infrastructure of farming, insofar as it's created by humans, exists in order to be able to provide revenue to capitalists who own the land and who are able to employ farmers and you know chemicals and seed as interchangeable inputs. But what we need is a transformation, not just in who owns the land, but how things are grown. And that means a transformation in the way that ecological policy, our agricultural policy, our food policy, our labor policy works 
in order to be able to support an economy that allows smaller landholdings to proliferate in the hands of many more people, and then many more people again to be able to afford the food that is grown through that new kind of sustainable farming. So yes, I mean, when land reform was mooted in the past, people did talk a little bit about, you know, changing agriculture policy as well. But in this moment of climate crisis, and in this moment of racial reckoning in the United States, it's possible to imagine these forces coming together to really think hard about large transformations in land reform. And that's not going to come from individual white farmers, but it can come from kinds of institutions over which there is democratic control. So, you know, government land holdings, the Bureau of Land Management, the Department of the Interior, and uh, of course, you know, the universities that I was talking about earlier on. I mean, so well put, and I'm going to have to listen to this five times so I can memorize it because I can't say it as well as you, but I get it. And it's funny because we are talking about... Hmm talking about an advanced stage of agroecology where it kind of all comes together. It's not just who owns the land, but what's done with it. And it's not just who owns the land and what's done with it, but what's done with the product that comes out of it and how's that afforded, distributed, made attainable, and so on. But yeah, I guess we can't dissect that ad infinitum. No, but but you've you've again, Mark, you you, you brought us back home here with with the idea of agroecology because some people will say, well, you know, land reform isn't nothing; it has nothing to do with agroecology and food policy and SNAP entitlements. That has nothing to do with agroecology. Agroecology is really just squarely about planting corn and beans and squash. And uh, no, it's not. It's about gender equality, as as in the case in Malawi. It's certainly about racial equality. It's it's about reparations here in the United States. It's all of these things because all of these things have a bearing on folks' ability to be able to eat and to be able to grow food and about our ecosystem's capacity to be able to regenerate from the damage that we've done to it so far. Here, here, you are the best, the best. I wanted to give you an opportunity to, if there's anything new since we talked, which is probably six weeks ago at this point. Yeah. I was thinking particularly about UN Food Summit or, oh, your book, which we've timed this so that it comes out the day before your book comes out. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, as with your book tour, the whole thing's virtual, isn't it? So you can find out about the book by going to rajpatel.org and find out where uh, we'll be doing our various virtual book tours and what radio stations are on and that, all that good stuff. But actually, the, the Food Systems Summit is really, I, I'm, I'm very heartened by the fact that so many people are backing away from it. Well, you know, it, it could have been one of these you know, what, what, one of these events that technocrats have, you know, successfully engineer in the background to be able to siphon power away from a democratically elected body. And the covers have been pulled uh, away from it. And we can see quite how clearly now uh, the private sector had their fingers in the process and quite how interested they were in policing who gets to know what about the food system. I think that that's that's the important story here, that there are certain kinds of knowledge that only people in white coats you know, arrogate to themselves, and that there's a certain kind of science and technology of the food system that is patentable. And that's the science that seems to count in figuring out how we're going to avoid climate catastrophe. Whereas the best evidence suggests that uh, it's not going to be Monsanto and its army of engineers or Bayer or BASF or Dow AgroSciences that's going to solve the climate crisis, uh, but it is going to be uh, systems of agroecology that are incompatible 
with their kinds of for-profit science. Uh, and so you can either have a food system summit that takes the incompatibility between agroecology and uh, capitalist, uh, you know, chemical science uh, seriously, or you could pretend that everyone's welcome and we've got a very big tent. And even though uh, we have white supremacists and and black people in the same tent, uh, everything, uh, you, know, we, you know, our tent is big enough to hold that incompatibility. And it isn't. At some point, you have to make a choice. And so, you know, I, I obviously, uh, I'm I'm not uh, saying directly that. Bayer are white supremacists because those days are behind them. But the, the the idea of you know a, a big enough tent you know for multi-stakeholder consultancy to happen and for a reasonable and meaningful out, outcome to, to emerge from it other than we approve of anything that improves the world is it means that the summit is worthless. So I'm glad that champions of agroecology and more durable and sustainable solutions are walking away. When I was in Rome in 2018 at a some kind of FAO, UN food summit. I mean, there's so many different things. It's hard for me to keep track of which ones are which. But when I was there in 2018, the floor seemed sort of split between, even the UN people themselves seemed sort of split between supporting agroecology and so-called looking for progressive ways to work with agribusness, new and exciting and interesting ways to the big tent theory, as you say. It doesn't seem to have come that far since then. It's, it's kind of, there are champions of agroecology in the UN, but they're not dominating. No, but what has happened is, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm grateful for that observation, because what that suggests is that the UN is, you know, rather like every country in the world, where there are some people who know that agroecology is the way to go. And there are some people who are like, look, yes, agroecology is awesome. And at the same time, we live in the world that we live in. Wouldn't it be good if Nestle or some of the, you know, the world's largest food producers did small things a little bit better because they are so vast that small changes across the kinds of scale at which they operate are going to result in actual meaningful change. Now, th- th- those are live debates and they are prosecuted everywhere. And so I'm I'm, I'm glad that they're happening. That's, that's good and important. At the same same time within the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations, uh, there has been uh, an important site of scientific knowledge and sharing, uh, the high-level panel of experts, where uh, you know different peasant movements and indigenous movements and you know, proponents of agroecology have been able to make their case in a robust scientific setting to be able to point out that agroecology isn't just something that hippies like, but it should be the sort of thing that, because it's supported by robust evidence, should be rolled out with much more enthusiasm and support than it is at the moment. What's important in the UN Food Systems Summit is that the UN Food Systems Summit is trying to undermine this democratic space of knowledge and science. And so what you're seeing is a spat not between people who are like, well, why can't we try a little bit of everything? And uh, people are like, agroecology is great. But people are like, no, agroecology is not good science. And we should have science run by these few people who are, you know, will police the borders of what counts as science and what doesn't. So, you know, the UN Food System Summit is somewhere over, uh, you know, over to the right, if you like, um, with a far more 
uh, aggressive and you know, for-profit idea of what science is. Uh, and that's what makes it particularly pernicious because it, it flourishes under the brand of the United Nations. But it's not like the kinds of things that you saw back in the day. This is definitely a sort of corporate attempt to use the UN brand to secure certain kinds of outcomes that were not actually part of the live and meaningful debates that were going on within the UN. So they reached out to people like me, like us, because whatever, to whatever extent we pay this or are involved in this, it gives them legitimacy. I think so. And, you know, the, the only way that you can justifiably claim that this is a multi-stakeholder opportunity is if you have stakeholders that are not merely from the private sector uh, and not merely part of a, a conclusion that seems foregone at the moment, but are also opponents of that conclusion. Because then you can say, well, you know, we had some opponents there and we've got this little paragraph in the final text that, that doffs our caps to them. But actually, here's the real thrust of what it is that this, this Food System Summit has decided. And what it's decided is that corporations ought to be a little bit better than they are. But nonetheless, they are the champions of science without whom we could never achieve a, a sustainable future. Whereas, in fact, it might be the case that those corporations are part of the problem in achieving that sustainable future. And, you know, it's interesting that the Rockefeller Foundation just came out with a report that said that, you know, for example, in the United States, uh, while we spend $1.1 trillion on food every year, uh, the food system is responsible for $2.3 trillion worth of harm. And if that's the case, and it seems very reasonable, that, that concurs with a bunch of other data that we have on the harms caused by the food industry, then actually having the perpetrators of that kind of scale of harm at the table offering solutions is not just a bad idea. It absolutely is regressive. It sets us up for significant failure. Here, here. I could say that small changes on the part of those bad players in good directions would be a good thing. But if they're doing that as an excuse to avoid getting out of the way or helping more progressive ways of doing things, it's just not useful. I mean, given that people in America die every day because they are poor, and given that the food system is one of the drivers of low wages in America, to say, wouldn't it be good if they killed fewer people is a very low bar. I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm for killing fewer people. But it doesn't seem to me that spending a lot of time and energy trying to persuade killers to kill fewer people is the best way of ending the kinds of death and suffering that the food system wreaks in America, not to say that, you know, not to mention the rest of the planet. Agreed. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Take care. You have got to make a cucumber soup every summer. It's like a rule. And this is perhaps the least inventive of any cucumber soup I do routinely, but it's classic. It's really good. It's easy. It's a crowd pleaser. It's with dill, of course, and dairy. And as I said, it is a classic. So take about a pound of cucumbers. Again, I say this all the time, don't peel them unless the peels are thick. But this time of year... We should be looking at cucumbers with very few seeds and with very thin skin. So peel and seed them if you need to, then chop them just coarsely and put them in a blender with two cups of buttermilk. You could use regular milk with a little more vinegar, but buttermilk is really great here. A half cup of sour cream or yogurt, a tablespoon of olive oil, should be good olive oil, a lot of freshly chopped dill, a whole bunch, a handful is not too much maybe a pinch of sugar. You'll have to taste for that. Salt, of course, 
and a tiny bit of white wine vinegar. Puree that and taste and adjust the seasoning. You might want more salt, more pepper, more olive oil, more vinegar. You're going to garnish it with more dill and then serve that with crusty bread. That's it. That is classic cold cucumber and dill soup. You can refrigerate it for an afternoon before you serve it. I wouldn't do much longer. Maybe even give it a little zhuzh in the blender before you're serving again. Great stuff. Okay, your questions. As always, the hotline for questions is 833-FOOD-POD. That is 833-366-3763. Leave your name, your number, email address, your question, of course, where you're calling from. Today's first question is from Helen. Hi, my name is Helen Conroy. Here's my question. Is there some ingredient in your pantry, or maybe there's more than one, that wasn't there last year that you've been having a lot of fun with lately? If so, what is it, and how have you been using it? Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay, I will tell you what I just started using in the last year, and I'm using all the time, and it's not, I don't know if in my pantry qualifies... Well, I'll get into the details. And that is cashew milk. And I am making cashew cream and I am making cashew yogurt. And I am spending days and even weeks without dairy milk in the refrigerator. And I am becoming a cashew milk maniac. It's not in my pantry because I make it myself. I don't see any reason to buy non-dairy milks. And cashew milk is the easiest one because there's no straining involved. You take two small handfuls, which is about 100 grams of cashews and you mix that with about a quart or a liter of water and you can use a teaspoon of vanilla if you like in there. Sometimes I do that and sometimes I don't. And you just whiz that in a high-speed blender for a minute and you don't strain it, nothing. You pour it into a jar and you use it. That is amazing stuff. And um, if you make it thicker, it becomes creamier. If you use yogurt techniques, which I'm trying to perfect so I can write about and talk about, turns into yogurt. I just don't make that yogurt well enough yet to tell you how to do it. But cashew milk to me is my newest favorite ingredient. So yeah, there's that one. Next question, Tammy. I am soon to be retired. And as a wannabe home cook, I thought in my retirement, it would be fun to be a recipe tester for cookbook authors, chefs, whatever. Problem is, I don't know how to go about doing that. Do I contact the publisher? Do I contact the chef themselves? I tried that once with Dory Greenspan at a book event and was kindly shot down as she already has recipe tester. Anyway, just some tips on how I might go about contacting food writers to be a recipe tester. That's my question. Thanks. Bye. There are so few professional recipe testers. What you need to do is um, latch on to somebody who needs a recipe tester. So that's a cookbook author to some extent. Publishers sometimes do use recipe testers, magazines, television stations. So how do you get started in that? I think you start as a kind of test kitchen assistant. You may have to start washing dishes and really prove yourself. There's not a lot of places where one person, a cookbook writer, has 
a dedicated recipe tester, but if they do, that's likely to have been a personal contact. That's not likely to have been somebody who kind of came up through the ranks. There's no official way to do this. You just have to keep at it. I don't want to make any assumptions, but this is a kind of on your feet, working hard all day job. And as a semi-retiree myself, aha, I don't know that it's actually the right job for a retiree. It's a, it's a kind of up and comer job, I think. But anyway, good luck. Hope it works out. That's it for this week's listener questions. If you have a question about food, cooking, whatever, call us at 833-FOOD-POD. That's 833-366-3763. So thank you all for listening. Of course, I want to thank the brilliant and wonderful and lovely Raj Patel for coming on the show. I want to add that personally... Raj has been an influence, a guide, a colleague, and there were sections of Animal Vegetable Junk, my most recent book, that would have taken me twice as long if I hadn't been allowed to draw on Raj's knowledge through interviews. And there have also been other projects over the years for which I've exploited his wisdom and kindness. As much as any guest we've had on this podcast, Raj is someone I've not only admired but relied upon and loved. So it is really with gratitude that I thank him for coming onto the show. You can follow Raj on Twitter at underscore Raj Patel. That's underscore R-A-J-P-A-T-E-L. His new book, Inflamed, Deep Medicine and the Anatomy of Injustice, is out tomorrow. Everybody who's listening to this can buy it immediately and should. It is a fascinating and wonderful book. Folks, if you liked today's episode, and if you're still listening, I can assume that you did, then please subscribe to Food with Mark Bittman on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you like to listen. It would be real helpful if you left us a five-star review on Apple, and detailed reviews are the best way for new listeners to discover the show. You can find the recipe from today's show in the episode show notes or at BittmanProject.com or at markbitman.com. They all kind of go to the same place. Finally, Food with Mark Bittman is a part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Check out Airwave's other shows at airwavemedia.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mark Bittman, and thanks again for listening to Food. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have a catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.